Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us by His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you, all, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, uh, for many of the classes that I took in high school and college, there were a lot of uh, different ways that they measured your progress. And I remember back to high school, our classes in high school would last from basically September to May. And in that time frame, we would have maybe five or ten tests. There would be a bunch of homework assignments that we were graded on. There might be some small papers, uh, maybe a midterm, a final exam. So there was a lot of markers of your progress, and if you failed on one of those things, it wasn't a big deal because you could make it up or get help and you could get better. It wasn't exactly the same way when I got to seminary. I remember one particular class called Introduction to the New, uh, New Testament Exegesis, and uh, my friends had warned me about this class and this particular teacher. They said that he's a great teacher, great person, but he's a very hard grader, and he specifically grades his papers very difficultly. So we get to class and look at the syllabus, and if my memory serves me correct, we had one paper that was 90% of our grade, and 10% was like reading or something like that. And this paper was relatively short by seminary standards. It was like an 8 to 10 page paper or something like that, pretty short. And that was, that was basically our course. If we did good on that paper, we did well in the course. If we didn't, we failed. So I started to obsess about this paper a little bit. And this wasn't just like a reflection paper where we could just kind of write what we wanted. We had specific steps that we had to take. And there were a number of different things that we had to do. We had to translate the Greek text. And to do that, I needed to use this Bible software that I'd never used before. And so this was completely unfamiliar territory to me. And throughout the time that I'm working on this paper, which was a very substantial amount of time, I'm wondering, am I doing this right? And so I would ask people who had taken the class before or who were farther along in seminary, like, is this how you do this? Am I doing this right? I would go to office hours 
And I'd show the teacher, like, is this what you're looking for? Am I on the right track? And, and after I completed the paper, I had people read my draft. I had, like, three different people read my draft because I just wanted to know, like, is this what he's looking for? Is, I mean, because this, this is it. This is the course. If I fail this, I fail the course. And so I was looking for this assurance that I was along on the right track because there was so much weight on that particular paper. In a similar way, there's a heavy weight on our lives. There's high stakes in our life. In other words, what we do in this life matters. What we do in this life determines where we'll spend eternity. What we do in this life determines whether we'll leave an impact and a legacy on those around us. And I think as we live this life and we wrestled with these weighty questions, I think that we would like to have a little bit of assurance. Assurance that we're on the right path, that we're going the right direction. The dictionary defines assurance this way as a positive declaration intended to give confidence a promise. And in this passage that we're looking at today, Peter gives assurance that his, his, how the, his readers can know that they're on the right path. First, how that they can know that they're going to enter into heaven. And second, how they can know that they're going to live lives that are fruitful and productive, that they're going to make a difference in the world. And I think this is an important message for all of us to understand. And Peter thought it was a very important message. The reason I know that is because he indicates that he's about to die. He's probably, about, he's probably in prison as he's right in this passage and he says that the Lord has told him clearly that he's going to uh, pass away in the near future. And so he writes what may be his last letter, or, or, you know, or one of his last letters. And he wants his readers to have assurance and to know how they can be on the right path and how they can have that confidence. And the first thing that Peter tells his readers and tells us is in order to have that assurance, we need to understand something about our identity. Peter begins by declaring the incredible truths of how God has transformed the identity of those who believe in Him. In verse 1, look at what he says. He, says, he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Peter says that God has called us to His own glory and excellence. In verse 4, Peter says that He has granted us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We might become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become gods, so to speak, but we take on God's moral qualities. As we grow in holiness, we become like God and we take on His divine nature. And so Peter is clear from the outset that the one who takes the first move is God. He's the one who gives us His grace. Everything that we do is because of His grace. It's because He's called us, because He's given us great promises, because He's sent His Son Jesus to earn for us a standing we could never earn on our own. He's given us faith because of Christ's perfect life. And so the first step that's necessary if we're going to have assurance is that we need to understand our identity, and that is that we're sinners, that we're all broken, 
That we've all fallen short of God's glory, but God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, to live a perfect life, to rise again, so that we might become part of His family. So that we might have a new identity, a new hope. And that's where we start. We start in our identity and who we are in Christ and what He's done for us. The great theologian and preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, My faith rests not in what I am or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, in what He's doing for me. So that's where we start in our identity. But if we're believers in Christ, if we're part of the family of God, our identity is supposed to lead us somewhere. It's supposed to lead us to actions. And that doesn't mean we're saved because of our actions, but a person who's transformed by God, who's a child of God, will have different behavior than a person who doesn't know God. We live out our identity. Because we're the partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in this world, we live differently. In this passage, Peter tells us nine characteristics that should be ours as children of God. These are similar to the fruits of the Spirit that we saw a few weeks ago in the book of Galatians. But there's a little bit of difference that I see between the list that's in Galatians that Paul gives and this list in Peter. And I think the difference is is the emphasis. In Galatians, I think Paul is emphasizing the work of the Spirit and the fact that God is the one who brings those things in our lives. But in this passage in Peter, I think Peter is emphasizing what we do. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. Both are right, but it's a matter of emphasis. See, when it comes to spiritual growth, I think we can make two different errors. Number one, we can make the error of kind of focusing too much on our own efforts and our own works. Thinking that our own works can save us or earn us a right standing with God. So we can do that, but the other mistake that we can make is kind of thinking that our spiritual growth is automatic. You know, we hear stories of people who are saved in a miraculous way. They're, you know, maybe addicted to alcohol or drugs or what, whatever it may be. And then Christ meet them, meets them and they're completely changed. They never struggle with it again. Now, sometimes God does that. In His grace, He does. There are some people who meet Christ and they're completely changed. They never struggle with those addictions ever again. That, that happens sometimes. But oftentimes, it's a struggle. Oftentimes, He changes us and transforms us, but that change comes slowly, gradually, and with much hard work and effort. Think of it this way. When I was growing up, I used to play with uh, Legos. And uh, one of the reasons that kids like Legos, I think, because... You know, it's a project for them to do, and they can put it together. It's something they can do, and when they put it together, they feel this sense of accomplishment that they've done something. But imagine if you were going to give a child a package of Legos, and you think to yourself, before you give it to him or her, you think, I'm going to help him out. And so you open up the package and get out the directions, and you put the whole thing together. And then you just give it to the child all put together. Now, it's not that the child would hate it, but that's not really the idea. The idea is that they would put it together for themselves, and that's how Legos are designed. And in a similar way, when some of us think about spiritual growth, we think of it like God just automatically does it for us. But that's not often how spiritual growth works. 
He gives us the package. That's grace. He comes beside us and offers to open up the package and go through the directions with us. When we're struggling and don't know where to go, He offers to show us the right way to go. That's how spiritual growth works. He comes alongside of us, empowers us, strengthens us. It's not automatic that it happens. Dallas Willard, in his book, Taking God's Keys, puts it this way. The abundance of God is not passively received. It does not happen by chance. The abundance of God is claimed and put into action by our active, intelligent pursuit of it. We must act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that comes through our relationship with Jesus. He says we cannot do this, of course, purely on our own, but we must act. Grace is contrasted with earning, but not with effort. Well-directed, decisive, and sustained effort is the key to to the keys of the kingdom and to the life of restful power in ministry. So, he tells us that we need to work. Not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, because of who we are in Christ. Identity leads to actions. And so Peter gives us characteristics that should be ours if we're believers in Christ. And these characteristics are not necessarily exhaustive. He doesn't include every characteristic that we should ever uh, ascribe to. And the order is probably not that important except for the fact that it begins with faith and it ends with love. The two kind of pillars of the Christian life, faith and love. But he says that we should add to our faith virtue. One Greek dictionary defines virtue as an uncommon character worthy of praise, excellence of character, exceptional civic virtue. We're to be people who are above reproach, people of uncommon character, praiseworthy in our morality, living authentic, transparent lives. He said that we should add to virtue knowledge. We're to be people who know God's word and seek to apply it to our lives. He says that we should add to knowledge self-control. We're not to be dictated by the works of the flesh, not given to drunkenness or sexual immorality or addictions. He says we're to add to our self-control steadfastness. Another word for steadfastness is perseverance. One dictionary describes it aptly this way. The capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. We need to be people who run to Christ in the midst of difficulty, who are strengthened by Christ in the face of difficulty. It says to add to our steadfastness, godliness. The word godliness suggests a wholehearted, authentic devotion to God. He says to add to our godliness, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection refers to loving those within one's family and by illustration, those within the body of Christ. And then he finally concludes that we should add to our brotherly kindness love, which is the agape love. Love that comes from God and is to kind of encapsulate all that we do as believers. And see, Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the, of the Lord. The word translated increasing in this passage could also be translated as abounding. If these things are abounding in, in our lives, we can have the assurance that our lives will be fruitful, that will will be productive, that they will make a difference. And he's not saying, I don't think, that we have to have all these things mastered. I mean, it's hard to put these things into our lives sometimes. 
It's hard to love people, especially when they're difficult or they, when they harm us. It's hard to be self-controlled. It's hard to pers- persevere when everything within us tells us we should give up. Yet these are the things that Peter says should flow out of our heart that follows after God, that should flow out of our identity. That in the process of seeking God's will, obeying and applying God's will, these things should flow out. Slowly, gradually sometimes, but they start to overflow in our hearts. And if these things are not flowing out of our lives, then there are two possible reasons. Number one, we might not be believers. Peter says, whoever lacks these things, or we might be believers, but we might be blinded. So we might be blinded believers. Peter says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. It's like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've, sad to admit, I've done this before where I've been like looking on my phone and walking through the house and like run into the coffee table or something like that. You know, or maybe you're watching TV or something and somebody's talking to you and it just, you know, you're kind of listening. It just doesn't register exactly what they're saying. You know, we're focused so closely on something that's right in front of us that we don't see what's going on around us. That's what Peter says for those who are believers who are blinded. They're looking at the things of this world, but they don't realize all the things that God is doing around them. And so if these things are not overflowing from our lives, we might be temporarily blinded believers, focused on what's in front of us rather than the reality of what God's doing. But the other thing is, the other option for those who lack these things is that we're not believers. See, our actions, our identity, our actions show our identity. If our actions are good and in accordance with these things that Peter outlines, it shows that we're child, children of God. But if they're bad, if they're given to the works of the flesh, it shows that we're not children of God. Look at what math, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Every, everyone then who does, hears these words of mine, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Identity leads to actions. And if our identity is not in Christ, then that will be demonstrated by our actions. Yet when these things are present in our life, it creates assurance. Identity leads to actions, which leads to assurance. When these things are increasing in our life, we can have the assurance that we're on the right path, that we're doing what God's called us to do. Now there's two different ways that we can have assurance. The first kind of measure that we can have of assurance is our subjective faith that we trust in Christ's efforts rather than our own efforts. 
We trust in Christ's sacrifice rather than our own sacrifice. That's the ultimate basis of our faith. We trust in Him, not in ourselves. But as we see through the course of time that God has brought these characteristics in our life, when He's produced these things in our life, it can assure us that we're on the right path, that we truly have believed in Him, that we truly are doing things that make a difference. And we can have the assurance, no matter where we find ourselves today, whether we're stay-at-home parents, whether we're in the workplace, whether we're retired, no matter who we are or what we do, if these things are becoming a part of our life, these virtues are becoming ours, the Scripture teaches us that our lives will be fruitful. Our lives will make a difference in this world. And not only that, we have the assurance that one day we'll enter into heaven. Look at how Peter concludes this passage. He says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. When these things are ours, we have that assurance, that hope, that faith that one day we'll enter into the glory of heaven. Just after World War II, uh, the Allied armies gathered up a number of hungry children. And uh, they, you know hadn't eaten in a long time. They were homeless, and they put them in these large camps, and they fed, fed them and cared for them, had plenty of food. But even though they had plenty of food, they had trouble sleeping, had nightmares, and had all these issues. They were restless and afraid nearly all the time. Finally, a psychologist came up with a solution. After the children were put to bed, they each received a slice of bread to hold. If they wanted more to eat, more was provided. But this particular slice was not to be eaten. It was just to hold. The slice of bread produced marvelous results. The child would go to sleep subconsciously feeling it would have something, he would have something to eat tomorrow. That assurance gave the child a calm and a peaceful rest. As believers in Christ, we can have the assurance that tomorrow will be better than today. That our lives indeed will make a difference. That we will leave a legacy. And that one day we'll be richly welcomed into the kingdom of God. To spend forever and ever with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Identity leads to actions. Actions leads to assurance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth to die for us, to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you offer us your assurance. That first we can have the assurance that we know you simply because of the fact that you've paid for our debt. That we can look to your cross and your resurrection as proof that you're enough for us. But we thank you also that you give us the assurance that as we look back on the course of, life, of our lives and the things that you've done in our life, we can have the assurance that you are working, that we are living out our identity, and that as we see these things, these characteristics produced in our life, we can have the confidence of knowing that our lives will be fruitful, that they will be meaningful, and that one day you'll welcome us into glory. Lord, I pray that we would have that assurance today. Lord, we pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Maybe as they look at that list of virtues, they say it's not part of their lives at all. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sins.
and trust in your salvation, knowing that you're the only one who can rescue us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for all that you do. In Christ's name.